you would please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Today we continue our, what I'd like to call an adventure of walking through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, that is. In chapter 7, Paul is addressing a host of questions and situations concerning marriage and singleness. Because of the spread of the gospel to places like the city of Corinth, all sorts of questions and relatively new situations have arisen that required the apostles' teaching and explanation. When Jesus addressed this topic with the Jews in Israel, his teaching was much more general. Why? Because the Jews' experience in life in Israel was already colored by the largely largely, um, accepted and revered Old Testament scriptures and their possession of them even if they misunderstood a whole lot of its main message. And Jesus, of course, had reminded the Jews of God's true intentions and design for marriage, which enraged many of the religious leaders who had continued to compromise those truths and like those before them had. But his teaching on marriage was not exhaustive and so did not cover every issue. Corinth was a completely pagan city, which had a well-known reputation for immorality, as we've seen. And here, many of those in Corinth in the Corinthians church had recently experienced the life-changing new birth in Christ, which meant that their lives had been turned upside down as more and more had put their faith in Christ and become new creations in Christ. They knew that the way they lived must change. Why? Because they knew that to be long to the Lord meant that they were seeking to love and serve Him and Him alone. It's in this context that all these questions are being asked and addressed. So the three basic questions in our text today, which is verses 8 through 16, are the following. First, with the tremendous proliferation of sexual excess and immorality that saturated this city of Corinth, Should the unmarried and the widows just stay single and celibate? Second question or issue is, now that both me and my wife belong to Christ, what is expected of us as a married couple? And third, my spouse is not a believer So how does my faith in Christ affect our staying together? 
If you are able, would you please stand as I read our passage today, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 16. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, How do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, one thing to notice as we dive in here, we're going to go through it in a way that I hope will be clear. Did you notice how the instructions in these sections go back and forth between husband and wife? Do you realize how strange that was in the first century for the woman to be able to have separate instructions? It wasn't just to the men and then the women following along. Notice that as we go through here, because Paul really we could say, blew some minds as he wrote this with these instructions. And there's a lot of them, and the first thing that we need to do is see what the parts are, and then we'll unpack it. So first, to the unmarried and the widow in verses 8 and 9. The word unmarried here is a broad general term for all unmarried people. And the widowed are those who have lost their spouse to death. Now this is not directed at just the widowed, but rather to the unmarried in general and to the widowed. Then in the last part of verse 8 we read, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now, Last week, in the previous paragraph, verses 6 and 7, Paul expressed his personal preference for remaining single. 
We get a glimpse here and there of Paul's personal life, which means he is single when he wrote this and probably was a widower himself. He explained that he has the gift of celibacy, which means not married and abstaining from sexual intercourse. In other words, what he was saying was that some are actually gifted to be married and others are gifted to be single. And this means that believers must seek and find what God has for them at different stages of their life. We also saw last week that many in the Corinthian church were being told that celibacy was for them all. So there was great pressure on even the married people to think that abstaining from intimate relations was the more spiritual and holy way to live. Paul laid that idea to rest in verses 1 through 5 of this chapter. Now we hear that and we don't even understand what it's saying. That would be the last thing on most people's minds in the culture we live on in is to even consider that possibility. But it was the context of the issue here. So what we see here in verse 8 is that being and staying single is a good thing for a believer. There is no rush into marriage. And those that try to be modern-day yentas, do you understand what that term is? Fiddler on the roof. The lady in the village who thought it was her divine calling to make a match for every person that lived there. Yenta, okay? Those that try to be modern-day matchmakers or yentas and put pressure on singles to marry, marry, marry may be doing great harm. Marriage is not necessary or superior to singleness and, it's, and it limits some potential for service to Christ, as we'll see later in verses 32 and 34. You know, um, months and months ago, one of our members here had some friends, two sisters who had been on the mission field for decades. And those of you that got to meet them, they're not young. But they are probably so much more content than all of us put together. And the glow coming from those gals' souls was one of the most precious things I've ever seen in my life. And there are many, many such people serving the Lord that way. The point is that if God gives you the gift or someone the gift of singleness, there are great avenues to serve Him, not having to be the mission field either. Many, though, and we should never just set that option aside. But you notice in verse 9 that Paul qualifies his personal recommendations. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. It's really interesting this phrase, cannot exercise self-control, uses a verb that's usually attributed to athletes. Why? 
because it's a great example of someone who has to exercise self-control in order to not just be in shape, but be gifted and learn the trade of being and doing specific things in some kind of sport. And sometimes this phrase is used in the general sense of controlling one's impulses, which is kind of the main idea. So this is interesting because Paul doesn't necessarily have sin in mind here. And usually we just jump right to that. In other words, an indication that one should seek to marry is if one has strong sexual desires. And there weren't any gasps. So I think maybe you're trying to get this. Maybe you already have. If one has the opportunity for marriage and sexual desires are strong, marriage is the best option. So one should not try to be what one is not. Marriage is to be preferred instead of burning with desire. In a society like ours, which is much like Corinth, in which immorality is so pervasive in every which way, it is especially difficult not to succumb to temptation. This is a very difficult quandary to be in then, isn't it? Especially for the person who has strong sexual desires but no immediate prospect for a spouse. What can a Christian do in this situation? Well, we've seen all sorts of bad examples of this, but let's go through some that might help. First, if you're in that area, make sure that you don't settle for just anybody. That's You're on the road to disaster. Second, realize that the best way to find what some people would call the right person is to be the right person yourself. And that means a whole lot. It means walking with God in dependence and faith, trusting him and his timing. It means intentionally engaging in spiritual service and staying active and not putting yourself around anything that unnecessarily feeds temptation. I remember hearing decades ago that if you're single and you desire to marry for some of these reasons, the best thing you can do is walk with Christ, run after him, keep your focus on him, and then look around and see who's with you. That is what you call not settling for just anybody. Also here, there's one particular passage, verse actually, that I can remember, can you remember the name of the artist now? Marty could tell you quick. She had a great, great song that was Philippians 4.8. And I remember hearing it a whole lot. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, 
Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Third thing to do is to live in light of 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above or beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. We've already seen in this book as we went over that, especially in the area of the sexual sins, Paul says, flee first. And we have to take that very, very seriously. By the way, also in this regard... I read something this week that I've never really had it expressed this way. One of the biggest areas of sexual immorality and sin in our culture is pornography. Temple prostitutes in Corinth and those that went there was the ancient version of pornography in our day. Pornography is a modern version of what we see in the temple prostitute that were, that were so available and weren't even thought of as being anything wrong with at all. Something else to consider. The fourth thing a Christian can do in this situation is to give thanks to the Lord for your situation and to be content in it. If we need to think about that more, we could get James back up to lead us in our hymns this morning. Just pick one. What is contentment? Contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord and to be totally at his disposal in the place he appoints, in the time he chooses, and with the provision that he's pleased to make. Next we see that Paul addresses Christians married to one another in verses 10 and 11. This is two believers. We might want to add in our day, this is a man and a woman who both are Christians. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. 
The word here that in verse 10 that is rendered as separate means exactly the same thing as divorce. This is not talking about leaving and not being divorced or staying somewhere for a while. It's the same meaning, and that's how it was meant. Separate is used to mean the same thing as divorce in verse 11. And note that when Paul says, not I, but the Lord, he's affirming something. He is affirming the source of his teaching. The general teaching of Jesus is applied here to a Christian man married to a Christian woman. And what is the general teaching? That marriage was designed to last and there should be no divorce. Remember where we are in this book. And this is why context is important. Because what is the context of the question that Paul is answering? The context of the question being asked is that some were buying into the idea that it was more spiritual to remain celibate, even in marriage. Paul addressed that, as we said, in the first five verses of this chapter, saying a a celibate relationship in marriage is not an option, except for a very brief time of mutually agreed upon prayer, or when there's sickness or distance that you can't do anything about. So now Paul applies the general teaching of Jesus about divorce to the specific issue of some married believers wanting to divorce in order to remain celibate. That is the the strict context of this whole passage here. As strange as that sounds to probably most of us. In other words, some believers thought that divorce was preferable to engaging in sexual relations because they thought what? That sexual relations were in and of themselves evil bodily functions that were bad. It's the only way we can say it. And his answer is the same as Jesus' general teaching. The wife should not separate from her husband or divorce his, her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. In other words, divorce is not a biblical option to escape from marital obligation. Paul does not speak to the case of the victim of adultery as Jesus does, and as Paul will later go on, or to the matter of desertion. His specific concern here is to stop people from initiating divorce because they think the body and its passions are evil. So they prefer to remain celibate. If they do divorce for this unwarranted reason, what does he say? They are to remain unmarried or else be reconciled. So thirdly, the next section, a Christian married to an unbeliever, an unbeliever who wants to stay married, verses 12 through 14. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever 
and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. And I can see the question marks flying out of everybody's brain. So let's just go through this. What does Paul mean when he begins this section with, I not the Lord? Because this is used in his excuse by so many people to rationalize what's coming here. He is not saying that what he affirms here contradicts what Jesus said. Because Jesus did not address this issue. All Paul is saying is that Jesus did not speak to or cover this specific situation. And the Old Testament did not cover many of these situations in Corinth either. In other words, what Paul teaches here is grounded in his apostolic authority as a Holy Spirit-inspired author. So is it any less authoritative than anywhere else in Scripture? Absolutely not. Paul's just making the point that, hey, we've got some situations here because the gospel has spread so fast that people are becoming Christians left and right that had never heard the name of Christ before. And they were probably already married and one of them did and the other one didn't. What are they supposed to do? Sounds like our world. The problem here was probably common in Corinth, in other words, just as it is in our day. What happens in the case of those who marry before becoming Christians? And then later, one spouse comes to faith in Christ, while the other remains a non-Christian. Folks, we've got some interesting stories amongst this membership of couples who were in this situation. One of those is currently in another continent, but it is a great story. Because in that particular case, both of them became Christians independently without the other one knowing it after they'd been married. So it was a great surprise when all of a sudden they got around to having a talk. Okay, what does Paul say? If the non-Christian spouse wishes to stay married, then Paul tells the believer not to divorce. The believers in Corinth, once again, must have feared, in a way that we probably don't, that they would be defiled by having sexual relations with an unbeliever. In other words, one of those people is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and one, the other, was alienated from God. So it'd be defiling to have an intimate relationship with that person. Does that make any sense at all in our day? I think we can get it. 
Instead, Paul actually says the opposite of what they were thinking. The Christian's not defiled by being married to an unchristian. It's the other way around. It's the Christian's walk with God puts that other person in the sphere of God blessing the one he indwells, and the blessings go that way. I hope that makes sense because it's a glorious and beautiful thing to consider. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of the husband. And immediately, the next thing, if you get that, we're going, okay, what what does that mean, to be made holy, to be sanctified? Saying that the unbelieving spouse becomes holy or sanctified does not mean that they will for sure be saved. In other words, Paul uses the word sanctified to be made holy, set apart, two different ways in this letter. Verse 16, you can see that. It says, how do you know whether you will save your spouse? It's not a guarantee. That's not what this means. Paul uses the term holy or sanctified in two different ways. Here in this context, holiness or sanctification is not derived from a personal faith in Christ. The person's not a believer. But because of living in the sphere of a Christian, there is blessing that is not present at all in a home in which neither parent is a Christian. In other words, the blessings and the graces flowing from the Lord into the believer's life, what do they do? They spill over to enrich those other people in the family who are not. The believer's faith is theirs alone. But it often is the means by which others in the same home may come to Christ. As they see what? The power and change in the believer's life in an up-close and personal way. Hopefully, this situation also naturally involves issues with the children, which are mentioned here. And the same principle applies to them. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy or sanctified. So God says in his word here that the presence of just one Christian parent will protect the children, not meaning that salvation is guaranteed because no child's salvation is guaranteed, but that they are protected from undue spiritual harm and that they too will receive spiritual blessing and graces spilling over to them from the overflow into the believing parent's life. Because God, His Word, are powerful. One commentator notes that often the testimony of the believing parent in this situation is especially effective. Can you guess why? Because the children see such a clear contrast, or should, to the unbelieving parent's life. 
And God may use that to lead them to salvation themselves. Okay, lastly, we see Christians married to an unbeliever who wants to leave. Verses 15 and 16. But if the unbelieving partner separates, remember that word means divorce, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved or under bondage. God has called you or us to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So what we have here in God's sight, as we look through the scriptures... The bond between a husband and wife is dissolved only by three things. Death, Romans 7. Sexual immorality, the word there being pornea. That Matthew 19.9, Jesus' exception clause. And now we see in this new situation, desertion and verse 15 of chapter 7, which in most cases is by the unbelieving spouse as here. When the bond is broken in any of these ways, the Christian is free to remarry. Throughout Scripture, whenever legitimate divorce occurs, remarriage is assumed. Back in verse 11, divorce is clearly forbidden. In that case. But here in another text dealing with divorce because of sexual immorality or adultery, it's not forbidden. And by implication, the permission given for a widow or widower to remarry because the person is no longer joined or bound to the one who died, that permission can extend to the present case that we're looking at here, where a believer is also no longer bound and so not enslaved. At the end of verse 15, God says, God has called you or us to peace. I have been amazed at how many, even commentators that we look up to, ignore this sentence. But some don't ignore it for a very good reason because it flows with what Paul has just said. It's very important to the flow of Paul's teaching. If this marriage has dissolved because the unbelieving spouse has left or deserted or divorced, the believing spouse sometimes, maybe most of the time, may punish themselves unnecessarily. But Paul writes, God has called you to peace. In other words, they should not punish themselves with stress and worry about trying to rescue a marriage in which a spouse refuses to remain. God has called believers to be content to find joy and peace in the circumstances they find themselves in. And then he closes this section with, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? 
Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, you can get into a great debate on this, depending on whether you're a half cup full person or a half cup empty empty person, and you can apply this and both fit in this context. In other words, is this a positive statement? Is it a negative statement? Is it kind of anything it applies to statement? This is just Paul's way of saying that the outcome regarding unbelieving spouses is uncertain. If they stay, they stay. If they choose to leave, Paul says, let them leave. Because the hope lies in God using other means, not just the spouse that was left. You see how that works? And you may have or you know may you may know somebody who has been in that situation. It's a great burden to carry. And Paul's trying to deal with that head on right here. Now we're only halfway through with this chapter. Um the middle part of this chapter, which is coming up, Lord willing, next week. The title over these sections in some Bibles is Live as You're Called. Paul goes back to uh, one of his main themes here. And we'll, we'll look at that, and I don't know how it's going to be divided yet, but this is a long discussion that comes in the rest of this chapter. It's very, very interesting. I hope this has helped a little bit. This is one of those uh, issues and chapters where you almost have to carry around a legal pad and know how to draw a flow chart in order to stay put. Because it's real easy to just look in there, grab something, and go, yeah, this is what it says. And you cannot do that if it's, if it's against what the context is demanding that you apply it to. It causes all sorts of problems and issues. Let's close with a word of prayer. Oh Lord, we see in your holy word that your design for us as your creation is is really, really beautiful. You equip people to be married. You equip some people to be single. Every one of us is called to draw their identity from who they are in you, find their, their hope, their faith, their communion, fellowship, the main things that are foundational for relationships in life as being fulfilled by you first and foremost. Lord, we confess that we jump so easily to finding our rest if we're really honest in everything else and look to you last. May we remember the words of the song we just sang. We find our rest only in you. And God, may we encourage one another as we look to know you better, to grow in you better, to be content in this life, and yet strive for excellence because of who you've made us to be, that we would have wisdom 
about how you made us and what you've called us to. Oh, Lord, we pray that our church would be a light in a dark world for how we think about these matters. So much so that as we struggle to understand them and apply them, that we could help others as well to get out of the morass and the enslaving behaviors and attitudes that literally keep people from knowing how great you are. Lord, we ask that your power would be evident, that you would continue to be faithful, which we already thank you that you are, to bring to completion what you've started in those that you've called to yourself. Oh God, help us live in light of what you've called us to and the hope that we have for you to bring all this to completion. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Christ, your gift to us. There is no hope anywhere else. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed.